0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome in here on this, uh, on this lovely evening. You're true devotees, uh, clearly, of, of philosophy and um, of uh, the, the search for uh, understanding liberty. I'm Alex Vorhoeven. I'll be your chair tonight. I teach in the philosophy department, moral and political philosophy. This is part of a series put on by the, a, a center, a research center connected to our department, the Center for the Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. And it's a really great pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Quentin Skinner here to give a lecture on philosophically speaking about freedom. Many of you will know his work. Uh, I came to know his uh, famous lectures on on freedom as a uh, graduate student uh, at uh, at UCL. uh, With no offense to my professors, if any of them are in the audience, I uh, would take the train every Thursday morning at seven just to show my dedication to attend the, uh, the nine o 'clock lectures in Cambridge, and I, what I remember uh, from then is that over eight weeks we went through the history of all the different concepts of liberty, and the board would uh, would always end uh, on a, on, a, on one aspect of a, uh, of a concept, and the next week would pick off pick up where we left off, and at the end, this tremendous board, which was from this side to that side of the room, was covered with all these different concepts of uh, liberty, very impressive, and I thought, I want to be able to teach like that. I will never use PowerPoint. <laughs> right. But um, uh, perhaps PowerPoint has advantages that uh, when, when one tries to compress the whole history of liberty into one lecture um, uh, that uh, it didn't have when we worked through it in the old-fashioned way. But more seriously, the, um, uh, Professor Skinner is known for his work Uh, on uh, the foundations of modern political thought, um, which is also the title of a a classic book of his published in 1978, and then especially focused his work on Machiavelli and the English Republicans of the mid-17th century. Um, Most famous book on liberty is Liberty Before Liberalism. Uh, That was 98, I believe, is that Mm -hmm. correct? And and since then, uh, he's been expanding his ideas and become... uh, probably the the preeminent defender of a view of liberty different than the standard liberal view, namely the Republican view. So great pleasure and excitement that I now hand over to uh, Professor Skinner.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, It's a really great honor to be invited to the school and a very great pleasure to be back here. Um, So, I understand myself to be in a series about philosophically speaking about X, where my X is freedom, but if you are philosophically speaking about freedom, um, a question arises, I think, about philosophical method, which one can't really evade. Um, When we speak about freedom, we're obviously speaking about one of our core political values, so it would be good, philosophically speaking, if I were able to work towards a definition upon which we could, at least in principle or in discussion, come to some agreement about. And for those of you who know the idiom of contemporary analytical political philosophy, I think it would be fair to say that the the aspiration to offer just such purportedly neutral analyses of our key concepts in moral and political philosophy has been central. So there would be one possible way of approaching it. But that is not mine, because um, my... Tendency is to agree with the very celebrated formulation that Nietzsche offers in the genealogy of morality that a concept which has a history and especially a moral or a political concept which will have become enmeshed over time in ideological disputes for that very reason is liable to evade definition because the question of how to define it will itself be a matter of ideological dispute. And, of course, liberty is unquestionably such a concept. It's been in debate throughout the ancient as well as the modern world. So there's the question of method, but as you can see, I think that it helps to give us an answer as to how we might proceed, which is genealogically. I see no hope of offering a neutral analysis of this concept that we might, in principle, agree about. But what we can certainly do is to talk about how The use of the concept has developed in our culture, how it has been contested, how rival understandings have emerged and done battle over time. Now if it seems that that's to say, but then this concept is in some way essentially contested, then I don't think that that follows, although of course that will be another subject for debate. But in any case, philosophically speaking, genealogy will be my method this evening. But, of course, the genealogy is boundless and I need to bring my materials under some kind of control uh, and that's going to have to be completely arbitrary and my arbitrary decision has been to focus on the anglophone case, the discussion as it has emerged in English-speaking political philosophy. That is not necessarily because I think the anglophone case the most important philosophically speaking. And even if you talk about the Anglophone case, you'll find you cannot fail to talk about the German tradition to some degree. But the reason for that is that the Anglophone case is what I pretend to know about. And after many years of lecturing, I've come to the conclusion that it's best to lecture about what you know about. So that is another powerful piece of methodology. Okay, a genealogy of freedom now a genealogy is not a narrative obviously that's the whole point uh, that we're trying to distinguish genealogy from narrative and so genealogies don't have clear beginnings and of course they don't have ends so another piece of arbitrariness is going to be where we begin now where I've decided to begin is as least arbitrary as I can make it and it is with the first Work of Anglophone political philosophy in which a systematic attempt is made to analyse this notion of civil liberty or the freedom that you have as a citizen within a civil association. That's the notion I'm focusing on. And the first Anglophone philosopher who attempts such an analysis is Thomas Hobbes in the Leviathan of 1651. Now, there are two further merits of beginning with Hobbes. One is that that's not only the the founding discussion of the concept in the Anglophone tradition, but it is probably um, the greatest work of political philosophy in the English language. So it's quite good to start with with a, a major work. Secondly, and this happens with major works, it turns out that Hobbes' account of how to think about civil freedom has been incredibly influential. So that if I begin with his analysis, you will find that it is a very familiar one. And you'll see that as soon as we start, with many apologies, not on the blackboard, but with PowerPoint. All right. Um, I've called this, as you see, the liberal concept of individual freedom. I ought to pause for a moment here because um, sometimes I'll talk in this lecture about freedom and sometimes about liberty. Now, obviously, those are not um, completely synonymous terms. I mean, philosophers like to occupy themselves with what to do about distinguishing these terms, and it's not an ignoble activity. But nothing of philosophical weight hangs upon the distinction of terminology here. You could think of it as just the German tradition, Freiheit, versus the Latin tradition, Libertas. And that being so, I'm going to use the terms interchangeably. I don't think anything of philosophical importance will be lost if I do that. Okay, so here's the liberal concept, and as you see, it's very simple it has just two components and it tells you that for an individual to enjoy freedom as a citizen of a state there has to be power on the part of the individual to act in pursuit of a given option or at least alternative and there has to be no interference with the exercise of that power by any external agency okay there's two very simple thoughts Very powerful thoughts, as it turns out. Let me take them in turn. Notice that Hobbes is insisting, I think valuably, that it makes no sense to talk about freedom of action except in relation to your having a power or an ability to act. That's important because there's a strong tendency in contemporary political philosophy to suppose, I quote, for example, Jerry Cohen in his essay of 2008, Freedom and Money, that I quote inability is a sufficient condition of unfreedom and the view that if you are unable to do something then you are unfree is also the undergirding of the philosophical opening of Amartya Sen's great work Development as Freedom of 1999. Now I think that Hobbes usefully suggests that that's already to go amiss. If you lack power to act in a certain way, I mean, if you lack the power, I don't know what, to walk on water, then what Hobbes wants you to understand is you're not free to walk on water, but you're also not unfree to walk on water. The question of freedom doesn't arise because you lack power. Now, you can put that point the other way around, and if you do so, you immediately see its moral significance, which is that if you are unfree, to act in a certain way, that must be because you have been disempowered. It's not just that you don't have the power, if you're unfree, it's because counterfactually you have a power, but it's been taken away from you. Now there's a Foucauldian thought. Foucault brings this out, I mean, of course, relying on Hobbes very brilliantly in his lectures on power, that freedom is nested within power. It only makes sense to talk about freedom in relation to power. So there's the first thought. The second thought. Is, if you think about it um, in effect a way of talking about disempowerment you're said to be disempowered according to this theory and hence unfree if and only if some other agency interferes with the exercise of a power so counterfactually you have a power unfreedom stems from interference with your exercise of that power so on this analysis Freedom, if you want a definition, is absence of interference. By the way, that's why in contemporary political theory, where that definition is very widely accepted, that's why freedom is often called a negative concept. Um, The presence of freedom, that's to say, is always marked by an absence. And if you ask absence of what, absence of what defines the presence of freedom? The answer is in front of you, absence of interference. Well, that does not get us very far, does it? I mean, those are powerful thoughts. But if freedom consists in absence of interference, it turns out that what you really have to grasp in order to think about freedom is what counts as interference. What is this notion interference? What counts as interference? So that, you might say, is the positive question in negative theories of freedom. What is interference? That which takes away freedom. Now, again, Hobbes offers a straightforward and extremely influential analysis here. And here it is. External agencies are said to interfere when they act on the body of an individual in such a way that an action, counterfactually, within the power of that individual is either prevented or compelled due to the application of physical force, by this external agency in such a way as to render the pursuit of the alternative impossible. So Hobbes summarises beautifully chapter 21 of Leviathan, absence of external impediments of motion is what liberty properly signifieth." Could I just underline three points about what you're now looking at? First, notice that I've spoken about agency Um, I need to keep the predication wide, not just agents in the way that uh, Anglo-Saxon law would think of an agent, but agencies. And I keep the predication wide because if you think about it on this analysis of freedom, the external force that could disempower you might be a natural force. So um, if I'd been prevented from coming to give the lecture this evening by fire and flood, um, for Hobbes there's no problem about saying... um, that what interfered with my capacity to come here was fire and flood. Second, uh, notice that you can always be disempowered from pursuing alternatives in one of two ways. That's kind of obvious. You can either be stopped so that the power you are seeking to exercise is prevented, or you can be compelled contrary to will to exercise a power. Third, now, this gets interesting because the third point is visible in front of you but it's a very counterintuitive notion I think that you're looking at it says that only bodily interference takes away freedom of action so if your will is coerced so for example if you uh, do something out of the fear of the consequences of not doing it I mean, for example, there's a standard way in which the law operates. Uh, Quite frequently, people obey the law because they're frightened of the consequences of disobeying the law. I mean, there'll be a known penalty attached, and it will be imposed. So that coerces the will. Um, Now, Hobbes wants to say that when you act upon coercion of the will, you nevertheless act completely freely, and you're completely free to act otherwise or as he puts it again, a memorable summary, fear and liberty are consistent. Now, Hobbes really means that, as he brings out with an example which is not uncommon in 17th century philosophy, um, which is the highwayman. The highwayman says, your money or your life. Now, Hobbes' point is, you're being offered a choice. And when you decide to hand over your money, don't forget that you were given the option of handing over your life so you chose not to hand over your life you could have chosen otherwise so what do you mean you weren't free I mean freedom is choice and so your money or your life is a paradigm of freedom of choice now that doesn't mean you don't choose to hand over your money Hobbes thinks that's a very natural thing to do Uh, and he says on the other hand and it's a nasty joke when you hand over your money you not only hand it over freely because you hand it over willingly but you hand it over very willingly now if you object to that as Bishop Bramall did in his famous discussion with Hobbes the, the tract which was published in 1656 under the title The Questions Concerning Liberty one of the very best discussions of all these issues between these two figures, Bramall of course being a scholastic philosopher. Hobbes says at the beginning this is a, um, this is a learned discussion between a, a highly learned divine who is a scholastic philosopher and a man who thinks for himself. That's, that's Hobbes. Um, Bramall objected to Hobbes that um, this forgets our freedom to will. Okay? The freedom of the will is what Hobbes has forgotten. But Hobbes says, I haven't forgotten that. That's a complete delusion. There's no such thing as the freedom of the will. Because when we talk about the will, all we meet is the last appetite after which we acted. You deliberate before you act. You move towards or away from the act. If you move towards it and then you do it, what you call the will is the last appetite before you did it because that was what caused you to do it. So there's no such thing as freedom of the will. that's just an illusion but of course there's free action there isn't free will but of course there's free action because what is free action Um, well we know a free action is an action that hasn't been bodily interfered with so if there's no bodily interference and you deliberate and will that's free action although there's no freedom of the will that's the point in the discussion when Bramall begins to froth at the mouth But, of course, Hobbes is there making the founding statement of what became modern, as philosophers would now call it, compatibilism, the compatibilism of determinism with some sense of freedom. And that was the picture that Spinoza picks up from Hobbes. Okay, this way of thinking about your freedom is in contemporary anglophone analytical philosophy very widely accepted If you look at either of the two really major and ambitious treatises on the theory of freedom of recent times, um, Ian Carter's The Measure of Freedom, 1999, or Matthew Kramer's The Quality of Freedom, 2003. Matthew Kramer's is a massive treatise. Um, But as far as I can see, what Matt says in that book is what you're looking at. And it doesn't seem to say anything else. So I've saved you a lot of trouble. Aren't you glad you came? Um, So my point is, this genealogical line runs down from Hobbes into our own time. And we're going to see that with a number of features of this genealogy. You might think, however, that what you're looking at, something's gone wrong. uh, It would be very natural, I think, to suppose that something's gone wrong here. And the view that something is wrong with this was what really excited the moral and political philosophers of the generation immediately after Hobbes. And incomparably the most important of those, writing only 40 years later, is John Locke, both in the the, um, essay concerning human understanding, but above all, the discussion of political liberty in his Two Treatises of Government, published in 1690. So I'm moving on in my genealogy from Hobbes to the Lockean generation, and I want to say a word about Locke's retort to Hobbes. What does Locke find is wrong with this? Well, not that you're unfree to act if you're prevented from exercising a power. I mean, of course, he agrees with that. But he wants to say, of course, you are unfree if your will has been coerced. I quote, If a robber with a dagger at my throat force me to seal documents and convey my estate to him? Do I act freely? Well, the question is purely rhetorical. What Locke wants you to see is that, although it's not impossible for you to seal your deeds in that way, you're just not going to do it. Not freely. If you do it, you are not acting with full freedom. You can say... As Hobbes does well you took that choice but Locke wants to say that's not a free choice that's a coerced choice so coercion of the will on this account takes away freedom not of course by making an action impossible but by making it Locke doesn't use this word but it's used later in a very memorable restatement of this theory by Jeremy Bentham in of laws in general where he uses the term which as far as I can see he takes from Blackstone which is that the choice is ineligible. That's to say you would never freely choose to do this. The robber has the dagger at your throat. All right, so you may sign deeds, but that's not going to stand up in a court of law. That's coercion, and that's an unfree act. So suppose we entertain that thought, which the Lockean generation very much wanted to do against Hobbes. Our genealogy now looks like this, and it begins to look like a genealogy. Uh, Hobbes' analysis is now over on the left wing. Uh, That's not where he wants to be, of course, but Hobbes I've put on the left wing, and the Lockean addition to the Hobbesian story is now on the right. And with new material, all through this lecture, I will signal it um, in bold. So that what Locke's complete claim is that unfreedom arises when there is either Interference by external agents acting on your body to make an action impossible, or else acting by means of coercion to bend your will in such a way as to make the action ineligible. Okay. So now we've got a concept which turns out to be crucial to the analysis of freedom, which appears nowhere in Hobbes, the concept of coercion. And as you can see in Locke's account, if you ask what is freedom of the will, sorry, what is free action? Locke's answer essentially is free action is uncoerced action. Of course, there is impossibility, but fundamentally free action is now seen as uncoerced action. So now, if you're a Lockean, you've got a new problem which Hobbes doesn't have. The glory of Hobbes' analysis is that the problem I'm now going to look at, he doesn't think is a problem at all, which is, well, what is this idea of coercion? There's another unanalyzed concept we've suddenly found ourselves with. Coercion of the will. What is coercion? Now, it is remarkable that Locke, in the two treatises of government, never gives a direct answer to that question. He doesn't give an analysis of the concept as he understands it. He just offers you various examples which he thinks will be obvious to you are cases of coercion. And this is paragraph 222 of the second treatise. And here they are. He thinks that what will render actions ineligible will be threats or promises or offers or bribes. As he says, all of this is the bending of your will to someone else's designs. Well, that's as much as Locke has to say, so we're left asking ourselves, well, what do we think about that list? Um, It's not, I think, looking very good, is it? Um... Is it really true that if I offer you a bribe, I thereby coerce you into acting in a certain way so that you're able to say in a court of law, I'm sorry, I took the bribe, I had absolutely no alternative. Um, You're not going to be acquitted. Uh, I mean, that certainly won't do. So what we now need is something that Hobbes isn't interested in and Locke should be interested in, which is we're going to have to give an analysis of this concept. The earliest anglophone legal philosopher whom I have read who who really sees this problem head-on and tries to give an answer to it is Bentham in the great treatise which he didn't publish called Of Laws in General of 1806. And so my genealogy now moves from the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century, to the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Bentham proposes in Of Laws in General that you should distinguish two ways of bending someone's will to your designs. One is that you can reward them for compliance. Okay? You say something like, "Um, if you do what I ask, I'll give you a million pounds. So either this person acts in conformity with your will, in which case they're much better off, or, um, if it's a bribe, they may prefer their honour. You could keep moving the money up, of course, test their honour but if they refuse to comply, they're no worse off. So it's Pareto-optimal. In fact, it's a way of talking about Pareto-optimality. Either you're the same as you were, you go your way, or you're much better off. So there's one way of someone bending you to their will. The other way, Benson wants to distinguish absolutely, is that you can bend someone's will by penalising them for non-compliance. So here you say something like, you know, if you don't do what I ask... Um, I'll kill you. Now, here the person either acts in conformity to your will, in which case they're no better off, they're simply avoiding death, or they refuse to comply, in which case they're much worse off. Indeed, in this case, they're dead. Now, Benson's suggestion is that what coercion is is the second way of bending the will by contrast with the first So, faced with a threat, to go right to the top of Locke's list, for Bentham, it does make perfect sense to say that you have no real choice. That's to say the action is ineligible. Or rather, Bentham is careful to add, this will be so if the threat itself fulfills various conditions. And the conditions it must fulfill is that the threat should be serious. I mean, if you threaten me but I don't care about the threat, then my freedom is unimpaired. The threat should be credible. You, you might think, well, I don't know. This person's not going to be able to kill me. I just happen to be armed completely. And armed. I don't know, you know, you, you don't find it credible. And the third condition is that the threat has to be immediate. The person says, I'm going to kill you. And you think, mm, this is really going to happen. I'm not going to be able to run away. So if those three conditions are fulfilled, that is duress. There's Bentham's analysis. All other ways of bending your will, that's to say by rewarding with compliance, Bentham says, are, and he always likes his phraseology, uh, is allurement. This is uh, bending to your will by rewarding you for compliance is non coercive. It is alluring you. Alluring is compatible with freedom. Duress is obviously not. So there is Bentham's analysis. It seems to me a very valuable one and was picked up, famously picked up, by Robert Nozick in his classic essay called Coercion. Although I have to admit that, you know, Santayana's epigram about how if you're ignorant of the past you're condemned to repeat it is particularly true in philosophy. So Nozick actually repeats Bentham's argument which he evidently hasn't read. Well, it's even worse if he has read it. Um, But Benson and Nozick, between them, give, I think, an interesting analysis which we can now try out on Locke. So look at um, D, starting from the bottom, shall we? Well, we've already seen that is allurement. It's clearly non-coercive. That that is the the standard case of allurement. Um, What about um, C, an offer, be a promise well that's going to be complicated Um, it depends on the speech act I mean if I say um, if you don't do this I promise to kill you well that's a promise but it actually has the form of a threat and so B becomes a and that tips over on the one side of Bentham but what about an offer if I offer you something um, that looks as if it's going to move towards a bribe, but there's a grey area in the middle which of course was brilliantly brought out for us in the movie The Godfather, which is that of the offer that you can't refuse Um, if there is such a thing then we've got a grey area between them if not, then we've got a paradigmatic case where it's allurement which is um, uh, D and a paradigmatic case where it's um, duress and that is A so let's now incorporate Bentham's proposal the proposal is that your freedom of action has been coercively interfered with, this is an analysis of the concept of coercion, if an alternative has been rendered ineligible due to a threat which is credible, immediate and serious. Okay. Now, is that now the analysis of the concept of social freedom that you want? If you answer yes, Um, If I answer yes, this is a very short lecture, but if you answer yes, you're in extremely good company because within the Anglophone liberal tradition, the notion that what we have in front of us now, what you're looking at, is a sufficient analysis of the concept of social freedom is quite widespread. And, for example, Isaiah Berlin's celebrated essay, Two Concepts of Liberty ends up with a preferred analysis of the concept, and the preferred analysis is exactly one that you're now looking at. So, um, you would be in very good company in accepting it. Notice also, here is another genealogical tree which has come down to our time. So you're looking at a very powerful um, descent of classic liberalism from Locke through Bentham, right down to Berlin. However, within the liberal tradition there arose a complication only a generation after Bentham and it's a celebrated crux in modern Anglophone political theory when John Stuart Mill publishes his famous essay On Liberty in 1859. So we're only half a century on from Bentham. One of the moves that Mill makes is to point out that the liberal tradition has so far endorsed an assumption which Mill thinks is questionable. And you see the assumption at the top of the chart that you're looking at. That's to say that freedom is said to consist in the absence of interference with the exercise of your powers by external agencies. No interference by external agencies. That's to say another person, another agency, as it might be a corporation or the state itself, another instance of a corporation, or as I've allowed, also natural forces. But it has to be an external agency. Now what Mill asks in Chapter 3 of his essay, as I'm sure you know, is, do we have to accept that limitation? Is it true that freedom is necessarily an interpersonal concept? As this, of course, presumes. There are two agencies. Or, and here's the alternative, could it be that the agent who takes away your freedom could somehow be yourself, so that it's not interpersonal, and yet freedom has been lost? Well, if you entertain that thought, the chart of the liberal tradition begins to look more complicated. And this thought was indeed entertained in later 19th century social theory as successive attempts are made to make sense of this radical extension of the notion of interference. Notice we're still talking about interference. But here is the proposed addition. And now Hobbes' is right down on the extreme left, serves him right, And here is the Lockean story that runs down through classical utilitarianism, but here is a different story, which is not necessarily not part of liberalism, but which is introducing a completely different notion that we haven't looked at at all so far. That the self could prevent or compel action due to the operation of, well, what? How can the self undermine the freedom of the self? Well, here we enter deep philosophical waters, and before you watch me disappear, um, I think that without... uh, Yeah. I mean, these are deep philosophical waters, but let me at least say four possibilities, all of which will be very familiar to you, that purport to make sense of this notion. Passion. Passion now this thought is present in Mill but this is an ancient thought this is a Platonic thought and it's one that enters Anglophone discourse as early as Erasmus' translation of Plato's Timaeus in the 1530s the key suggestion that underlies this idea is the geography of the will that you find in that great text of Plato's Um, I seem to have skidded off the Anglophone just for a moment but think of yourself as reading Erasmus' translation into English the will can ally itself either with passion, in which case the resulting action is not free because it is an act of license, it's licentious as opposed to free, or the will can ally itself with reason in the geography of the soul, in which case the resulting action is genuinely free. If you wanted a classic articulation in early modern Anglophone philosophy of this distinction between liberty and license, where... Um, liberty is connected with reason you're only free if you're reasonable that idea of course fundamentally underlies the epistemology of John Locke's essay concerning human understanding the human understanding is the reason operating of course you can usurp that reason the passions do but then you don't act freely that is licentiousness and this liberty license distinction is fundamental in 17th century philosophy except of course in Hobbes never makes the distinction at all. Well, of course not. That's why he's down here. Well, I think that we do believe in A. I mean, we have many idioms still from the 17th century which do justice to the thought that A makes sense. For example, I was beside myself with rage. Um, The self is somehow out of control of the self. Or, of course, the immortal thought that love is blind that the passion stops you acting with reason. That's the force of that metaphor. You're not really free. And the idea that that you're not free in that you're enslaved to your passions is picked up in etymology, isn't it? Very important, passio in the Latin. But passion, um, in in early modern English, means passivity. You're not really acting at all. Well, of course, that's not the proximate um, source of Mill's insight, Um, If I were to say a word about the proximate source of his insight, it would be this, that Mill is moved, I think, as he says at the start of the essay on liberty, by the fact, I'm now quoting, that in our time, of course, 1859, the yoke of law has become lighter, but the yoke of opinion has become heavier. And I think that's right. That's to say everything that we looked at in the 17th century opposed freedom to the law. But what Mill is interested in, and here very strongly drawing on his elder contemporary, Tocqueville, is the power of society, the power of moeur, as Tocqueville insists on calling it, the power of custom to um, impose conventions and norms upon you to such a degree, and Mill thinks this is true of mid Victorian England, that you inauthentically internalize these social norms until you can't distinguish them from your authentic desires. And so that brings me to what I think is proximate in Mill. Chapter 3 on Liberty, I quote The people of England believe themselves free, but they choose what is customary in preference to their inclination until it does not occur to them to have any inclination except for what is customary. And then the mind has become bowed to the yoke. Notice slavery, not freedom. Well, I've spoken of that in, as Mill's contribution because that also comes down to our time, uh, and was absolutely central to existential moral philosophy. The notion that free choices are authentic choices; inauthentic choices are not free. Or, as Sartre wonderfully puts it, you must choose to choose. Hobbes would not like the sound of that. Here. here. Okay, let me round off this part of my discussion because I did want to mention two further possibilities. They're very important, but they do cause me to skid slightly off the anglophone tract for a moment. But here is a further possibility. Now, the notion that you might undermine your freedom by false consciousness is very much what Mill is saying, isn't it? Or it's very close to what Mill is saying. But, of course, the person who actually uses the language of false consciousness, who is a contemporary of Mill's, is Marx in the first volume of Capital. So, I don't know if this skids off the Anglophone track, really, because that text immediately became so extraordinarily important in late 19th century English social philosophy. But the key suggestion is, obviously, that if social being determines consciousness, and if your consciousness is determined by a society in which your freedom of action is conceived in bourgeois terms, that's to say in consumerist terms, then you will be liable to become the agent of your own servitude by adopting a consumerist and hence as Marx would want to say a false account of what is in your own real interests you think that what matters is growth but that might not be in your real interests your phenomenal desires and your real interests come apart and of course that also comes down to our time because the early Habermas especially in the essays collected in the the volume Towards a Rational Society is updating that Marxist story to talk about consumer society Here's a further possibility familiar to us all. And that carries us for a further generation beyond Marx. It's a wonderful fact, I think, that the publication date of Freud's interpretation of dreams was the 1st of January 1900. Freud believed that he had discovered a new entity, the unconscious. And he believed that he had thereby further extended our sense of how we ourselves can be the agent of our own unfreedom because, of course, the unconscious contains motives that lead us to act in compulsive and neurotic ways until you are made aware of the etiology of your compulsive behavior. And the aspiration, and it was always the way that that Freud liked to speak, is to liberate you. The unfortunate 1920s translation says, I'm aiming to make the ego master in its own house. So it's a theory of of liberation. From what? From yourself. So the self has enslaved the self. Here is a final thought, and this is the most important of all. That is just to remind you, in the spirit of Foucault, that the notion of exhaustive classification is incoherent. Well, we now have an array of um, different conceptions of freedom and definitely a genealogy. Definitely there are ways in which this comes down to our time. We've seen four or five different strands of thinking coming down to our time in this way. But notice, they all have one basic thing in common. They're all explicating, look at the very top, freedom as absence of interference and hence freedom as the fending off of intrusions of some kind. You may be the source of those intrusions but it's still intrusions with your freedom that are being fended off. So the thing that they all have in common is this agreement that freedom is essentially absence of interference. However, in Anglophone moral philosophy, towards the end of the 19th century, which is where my genealogy has now reached, a number of philosophers began to think that this account was radically incomplete. They're Hegelians they're very much drawing on Hegel's idea that to think of freedom as negative, remember um, part one of the philosophy of right, to think of freedom as negative is not to see that freedom is dialectical, and negative freedom is just the negative moment in a dialectic which must itself be overcome, aufgehoben, until we arrive at a proper understanding of freedom. And that proper understanding will carry us beyond negativity because we're not just doing negative dialectics, we're asking, what do you want this freedom for? And so there's the positive content. Well, of course, the liberal is not without a very strong answer to that question, uh, which is, what do you mean, what do you want it for? You want it for whatever you want it for. And that is, in a way, the glory of, of the liberal story, which is, yes, there's a positive element in the idea of freedom, You can always be asked what you want to be free from impediments in order to do, but the liberal answer is, whatever I want. It can't be more specified than that. But what's special about the Hegelian story is the belief that it can be specified. It's a liberal mistake. As Hegel says in Book One of the Philosophy of Right, only the English would be so vulgar (laughs) as to suppose that this is not a mistake. This is just negative dialectics so far. And we want to move beyond phenomenal desire. And that is going to produce a very different theory of freedom. Because if you move beyond phenomenal desire, you move towards real interests, you move towards the idea that human nature is normative. There's the amazing thought that underlies Hegelian political philosophy human nature is in itself normative, and freedom is the realization of your human nature. Realising the essence of your nature. Human nature has an essence according to this way of thinking. And freedom is the realising of that essence. So you want to be free not in order to do what you want to do, but in order to realise the essence of your nature, and that's what freedom is. Very early anglophone exponent of this view, T.H. Green, in his lectures... Um, on the principles of political obligation I quote to be free is to have realised that which you have in it in yourself to become so notice that this is very far from the notion of absence of interference it is saying freedom requires action of a certain kind And a free person is a person who has acted in a certain way. It's almost on the edge of sense, this. But um, we're certainly looking at a large conceptual gulf, that I'm confident of being able to identify, because here we're talking about positive freedom. We're saying, um, in Isaiah Berlin's famous phrase, this is the arena of positive liberty, where whether or not you are free is itself given a positive content the canadian philosopher charles taylor in our time has been one of the most important um or at least one of the most prolific writers who's put forward this view uh, and did so originally in a famous essay called what's wrong with negative liberty there was no question mark in that title what's wrong with negative liberty and then massively expanded in his book called sources of the self and he distinguishes the idea of freedom as an opportunity concept which is what we've got on the board That's to say, you know, you're free means you have an opportunity to act because you're not being interfered with. From freedom as what he calls an exercise concept. I can tell if you're free by seeing how you act. So there's a radically different notion. So here we have a whole new division, and it is a wide conceptual divide, from no interference to self-realization. now you may not think it makes sense to say some actions are inhuman or only partly human and that there are various things well we do say you know, that was inhuman um, that certain forms of action are distinctively human but if you're willing to entertain the thought that, that um, human nature might be normative in that way then you will find that you are at one with two mighty traditions of western philosophical thinking which have tried to make sense of this and here is one possibility the es- this is aristotle's thought the zoon politikon man is the political animal the essence of your nature is political so you act most freely according to your nature and are thus most free you are most freely a person when you exercise your talents in the public sphere but there is an alternative to that which has also been very powerful in our tradition and that is the Christian attack on, of course that's what Nietzsche's genealogy of morality is about is about B attacking A uh, so that the slave morality took over in Nietzsche's account that the true essence of your nature and the way in which you realise yourself most fully is in the service not of your community but in the service of God and that in the service of God resides perfect freedom. As the Anglican colleague says, his his service is perfect freedom. So the the Stoic paradox of freedom and service is made real. So there is the claim that your essence is spiritual. Of course, that is not a political claim, so I can't say anything more about B, but A is extremely important. Go back to A for a moment, and you're at the heart of so-called theories of positive liberty. They remain important in our time, and the most important philosopher of our time, who has argued A, is Hannah Arendt, especially in her essay on freedom in between past and future. I'm quoting Arendt. Freedom consists in politics. Try and make sense of that. Freedom consists in politics. And what I take her to mean is that the activity of self-government and the social virtue that that presupposes is the activity in which you most fully realize your human essence, most fully realize yourself, and are thus most fully a free person. And that is also Charles Taylor's view of freedom in the essay I've cited. I quote, Freedom must reside, at least in part, in collective control of the common life, for in the exercise of such control, we have the form of activity in which the essence of our humanity is most fully realized. And so there, too, the story comes right down, that part of the genealogy, to our own time. To which I have to add this. I'm not claiming that this classification is exhaustive, but I promised you would find that you're very at home with this idea because many people are Aristotelians and many people are Christians and we all understand what they're talking about. Okay, I want to pause at this moment. Um, I've, I've got five minutes left, haven't I? <coughs> Sorry?
2: <laughs>
1: well, I, I want to pause and then go on. I want to pause because it seems to me that what we've now got in front of us would be very, very widely agreed to... Uh, to somewhere is the correct story about freedom. I want to end by saying that what you're looking at misses out the most important point of all. I mean, the, the, There's something missing here which we really have to add and it hasn't been added in any of these traditions and that's why these last minutes are really important to me. And I can best say what I think is missing by making a point about Hobbes' argument which commentators don't often make which is that when he insists that liberty is simply absence of interference, he is making a fiercely polemical claim. He's trying to discredit a then very widespread understanding of negative liberty. And he and his utilitarian followers, if you take in the whole liberal tradition, expanding Hobbesianism into classical liberalism, they were so successful that the story I want to end by laying before you, the part of the genealogy which is missing, has really gone largely out of sight. And the key contention that Hobbes is trying to discredit is the legal contention, it's central to Roman law, and therefore central to the polities of early modern Europe, which marks a very strong distinction between the figure of the freeman, should be seen as one word, freeman or woman, in Latin liber homo, freeman or woman, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the figure of the slave. Now, according to this view of freedom, Anyone living as a slave is, obviously, ex-hypothesis, is unfree. So the question is, what makes a slave unfree? If you understand that, you'll understand freedom. That's the claim. That's the legal claim. So what makes a slave unfree? Don't answer having his powers interfered with or her powers interfered with, being interfered with in the pursuit of their goals. Because a slave might only ever do their master's bidding or their ruler's bidding, because this is a political claim as well and would if the master were completely benign or completely absent or if if there were no laws then their will would never be coerced and yet the Roman law wants to say nevertheless this person is a slave even if their will is never coerced so what makes them a slave the answer is of course having a master that's what makes you a slave If you have a master, you are dependent upon the arbitrary will of another. You are dependent upon their power. You are in their power, in potestate, as the Roman law says. But if you are in their power, you are a slave. And if you are a slave, you are unfree. Now, the reason that you are unfree is that you do not actually have power to act at will. Because all your actions have the character of permissions. In that the person who has arbitrary power over you could always exercise it should they choose they may not choose but they may and of course if they choose it may be lethal to you and then you'll discover that you were a slave all along furthermore although what's crucial here is that it's the very fact of being um, at the mercy of somebody else which takes away your freedom it would not be possible to be wholly at the mercy of someone else for long without noticing that you were. But once you notice that you are, then, of course, your freedom is wrecked further because you will self-censor. It will now become one of your major aspirations to keep out of this person's way or to not um, give them any cause to exercise the arbitrary power over you which they have. Well, you can see the profoundly ideological forces that are at work when Hobbes confronts this view of freedom. If I now ask in conclusion, who, according to this classical view of freedom in the modern world, who live as slaves? So let's go to the question. You will not be a liber homo, free man or woman. You will be a slave if there could be interference. It doesn't have to be the case, contrary to your interests, because you are dependent on somebody else. So, who live as slaves? The 17th century answer, and this is the major answer that's given to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan immediately by James Harrington in the Oceana, published in 1656, the most important republican treatise in the Anglophone tradition, is the following. All subjects of monarchs live as slaves. Actually, we're all subjects of monarch, so you've got to be a bit careful here. Why does Harrington insist on that? All monarchs have prerogatives. Prerogative of war and peace, and in in his time the prerogative to suspend the law, to dispense with the law, to exile people whom they didn't like the look of. Huge range of royal prerogatives. Veto all legislation. All of these are prerogatives of kings and queens, if they're Queen Regnant. But prerogatives are obviously discretionary powers. That is simply the will of the monarch. But to live completely subject to somebody's will is what it means to live as a slave. So you can be free, according to this account, if and only if you live in a republic. Second answer that became crucial with the rise of the European empires in the early modern period, the colonised live as slaves. This is the argument used against the British by the 13 American colonies in 1776 and is the argument used by such defenders of the American cause as Joseph Priestley, or Thomas Paine, or Richard Price. The core common to those three thinkers in their argument in 1776 is this. If you are governed, and especially if you are taxed by a colonial power, but have no representation in the legislative which is imposing the tax, then the tax is imposed in the form of a completely arbitrary impost. You have no say in the level of the taxation, but that is to say that you are entirely at the mercy of the assembly, which is imposing it, and that is to say that you are living as slaves. That is why the Revolutionary American Declaration of 1776 is called the Declaration of Independence. Independence from what? Well, from dependence, of course, from slavery, from being at the arbitrary will of the British Crown. So this is um, a revolutionary war against servitude. And that's how it's conceptualized. That's why it's called the Declaration of Independence. Because what is independence? Independence is freedom. That's what freedom is. A further answer, which became extremely important in the revolutionary decade of the 1790s, women live as slaves. Mary Wilson Craft's great treatise of 1792, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, exactly laying out what you see in front of you here that dependence is servitude to which John Stuart Mill was to add in his wonderful essay The Subjection of Women his last major work, 1869 um, where he completely changes his mind about freedom I don't think this has been sufficiently seen is that what Mill wants to say in 1859 is what we've got on the board what he wants to say in 1869 is women are bond slaves chapter 1 of the essay in England now why? because they have no testamentary will they are at the will, under the will of men but to be under someone else's will their arbitrary power is slavery and he says at the end of chapter 1 I see no difference between a woman in England now and a bond slave finally I want that not just for the reasons I've been given, but also because I want to ask, can we be so optimistic as to suppose that this form of unfreedom is unknown to us in the democracies of the present day? We are currently living in conditions in which our executives claim more and more prerogative powers, more and more discretionary powers, besides which, as citizens, we live under increasing levels of surveillance by the state. Now, the liberal state always says, well, don't worry about these levels of surveillance because they don't undermine your liberty because they're not interfering with you in any way. There's no act of interference. But we don't know what they're going to do with this information which we have about them. Not knowing what the state can do is being independent is being dependent upon the power of the state. So on this analysis of freedom, you should very much worry about surveillance because you don't know what this information is going to be used for. Now, Tony Blair used to say trust me well here I draw to a close I have nothing to say about that Um, let me place before you and this is the end, the complete genealogy as I see it, with all the different pieces taken out and um, I want to end, and this is my closing minute, uh, by trying to say what has been the point of these remarks and I have two points I want to make first, a Nietzschean thought genealogy is always critique and the critique works in this case as follows. We are repeatedly told in contemporary Anglophone political philosophy that there can only be one coherent view of freedom and that it is the view that freedom is absence of interference. So, for example, that is the analysis that underpins, as I've said, Isaiah Berlin's um, famous essay. It's also the analysis that underpins John Rawls's great treatise on the theory of justice. Um, it's exactly of that analysis. Now, I've spoken of writers like Arendt, who insist that liberty isn't negative at all. I've spoken of a tradition of Republican thinking who think that freedom is negative, but that it's not interference, not absence of interference, it's absence of dependence. So we have at least three completely separable ways of thinking about this concept, quite apart from all the ramifications that I've tried to talk about. Second point, you can't combine these. Some ways can be combined, but you can't hope to combine the whole story that we've got here. You're going to have to make a number of choices if you're thinking about freedom philosophically. So that brings me to the final thing I want to say, which is, okay, well, which which of these should we choose? Now, it's my view that the task of university teachers is not to give answers to questions like that. It is to give you the information that enables you to think what answer you would give for yourself. So if you ask me, where do we sit in relation to everything that I've got in front of us now? My answer is, that is for you to say, and I leave you to think about it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: So we, ha- we now have time for questions, um, we have about uh, 20 minutes, and uh, let's see, are there people with microphones, or will I just, oh yes, good. So over here first, please. If you'll please state your name uh, just before you ask the question. Uh, Richie Goldstein,
2: um,
1: brilliant talk, Andrew, very much. One thing that I noticed missing was a discussion of economics um, in this. Mm. So when you were talking about who lives as slaves, my reaction was anyone who is trying to claim to um, above poverty, for instance. When you talk about threats, threats of hunger, threats of poverty, threats mm. of someone firing you, for mm. instance. Um, I was just curious about, about that question. Yeah, v- very good. This is a very abstract schema. Um, there would be a number of different possible threats that might be held to take away your freedom and obviously a threat of hunger is crucial and indeed Hobbes is very interesting on this Um, he says if it's really the case that you you would starve unless you stole then you are completely excused, the law has nothing to say about that because that's the moment when there is no choice, if if it's steal or die then it's the moment that Adam Smith is most shocked by in Hobbes, He, he thinks Hobbes so far has been doing well and then Hobbes says this truly terrible thing um, so there's a huge change of moral psychology there I'm not l- operating at the level of that moral psychology I agree entirely with what you say of course subsistence can generate sla- uh, absence of subsistence can generate slavery of course um, threats can be um, of the form that you talk about a threat of famine um, leaves one co- that would be an instance of what I'm talking about Yeah. but it would be very good to fill that out of course I did Uh, talk about Pareto-optimality.
0: Right (laughs) over here in the uh, blue and white striped sweater. Uh,
2: Thank you very much. Um, Listening to what you were saying towards the end about Aristotle and Arendt and politics made me think of another rather perverse question about freedom which is not normally asked not in this way which is What about our uh, freedom to intervene in others' lives?
1: Yes, of course. Um, Well, I'm not setting up the question of free action. I mean, again, it points to the extremely abstract character of what I've put in front of you. You're going to be talking about examples here, Um, and we would have to go into what these examples were. Uh, standardly, if someone uh, chooses to um, intervene in my life, I, 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 I would be liable to think of that as an act of interference. Uh, uh, yes? That's not the question. Yeah. The question is, um, what about our freedom to intervene in others' lives? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm looking at the same question from the other point of view. Your freedom to intervene in my life is my experiencing your intervening. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's the same question, though, <laughs> seen from two sides. I'm interested in it from my point of view because um, I'm not here to deny for a moment that if you chose to intervene in my life in a way that uh, um, was contrary to my phenomenal desires, you would have undermined my freedom. I- I'm here to affirm that. that. That would be certainly an example. What I want to say about the three very broad things we've got here is that if we're talking about how they go together then I'm trying to say that what's fundamental is the talk about the liber homo, is talk about dependence. Everything else can sit on top of that. What you can't have is liberalism and then sit this on top of it. But I'm not here to deny at all that were you to intervene in my life in a way contrary to my desires, that would have undermined my freedom. Right. Um, Let's see.
0: The uh, gentleman in the pink shirt here
1: you choosing it because of what clothes they're wearing. I'm very <laughs> <much> <laughs> Hi. um Hi. It, it seems to be the case in
2: many liberal accounts of freedom that the major agent of interference is the state. Um, and that's certainly true, and there's much to say about how states exercise coercion on individuals. But it seems to me that there are many other institutions which are unaccountable and which exercise just the same powers, um, especially nowadays with the rise of institutions like transnational corporations, yeah. the IMF, the World Bank. Um, if we think right now, for example, of the policies by the European Commission or the European Central Bank, for instance, these are uh, unaccountable institutions in that citizens do not have a say in how they be- they, they behave, but they nonetheless have <coughs> enormous powers of coercion. Yeah. I just wondered whether they would these institutions would fit in your geniality somewhere, and what can citizens do to affect them?
1: Yeah. Well, again, this shows up the uh, the abstract character of what I've talked about, because, of course, I completely agree with that. And I think that the interesting feature of transnational corporations, especially in their relations with third world economies, is that they rarely have to operate by coercion. The relationship is one of such extreme dependency that the possibility That the transnational corporation, if you didn't set aside the laws that you've just passed in order to protect your rainforest, if you didn't set those aside, it would withdraw um, its investment. The capacity to um, control um, investment and employment conditions in third world companies by major multinationals is a relationship of dependency. They usually don't have to say look, by the way, if you don't bloody well, I mean that's just loss of face they're not going to say that, they don't have to say that so everything that you say about uh, transnational seems to me to fit very naturally under this banner that I'm here to tell you we should think about much more which is conditions of dependency upon people who have unaccountable I like your phrase, unaccountable power because we haven't said that expresses my will but if there's power over you which is not an expression of your will you're dependent upon somebody else's will that's true by definition so that's the worry, that's the, the, the entering point I want to make about this view of freedom So your example is very congenial to that. Of course, if we're talking about coercion, the standard form in which we experience coercion in our lives is from the state, of course, because states operate by laws um, and laws coerce. However, in a state in which you had representation which you believed in, that's to say, although the will that made the law um, was a represented will, you could nevertheless recognize it as your will, and that is a theoretical possibility, then you would not be unfree in obeying that law, because it would be an expression of your will. So in, in the proper um, republican self-government arrangement, of course the law coerces, but it doesn't take away your freedom, because freedom isn't to do with coercion it's to do with dependence. What does take away um, your freedom coercively of course, um, is laws which you have not agreed to because first of all, you're dependent upon them, and then they coerce you. <coughs>
0: Um, over there in the uh, in the middle, Katrin, uh, out there. Yep. Uh, yep.
3: Uh, yes. Um, Hi. I'm I'm a bit worried um, by the line uh, when you define dependence on the arbitrary willpower of others. Yes. Uh, because in John Locke, you have the right to resist to unjust laws and to yes unjust uh, government and uh, unjust or arbitrary power, the arbitrary power of the monarch. Yes. So that's a fundamental right and I think it means that dependency I mean dependence is included in the vision of uh, locks and uh, liberals that freedom is non-interference it's non-interference um, in um, uh, with your power to act in the sense of not only interference uh, by external agents, etc., but by arbitrary, unjust yeah. uh, powers.
1: Good. So
3: I think the, 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 the distinction between uh, freedom as um, non-dependence and freedom as non-interference, the, the, the distinction is not that clear.
1: Right, That's okay. Yes, view. thank you. So well, I've got to make it clearer because it's absolute. Um, but John Locke is on your side uh, Locke is, is quite confused on the question of whether freedom is taken away fundamentally by conditions of dependence or fundamentally by acts of coercion now everybody thinks I take it that if I'm uh, in, in prison um, I've been rendered unfree I mean, we, I mean no republican denies that um, and all liberals assert that. So there's something where, of course, they agree. Where they come apart is at the following point. And uh, this is where, for example, Carter or, or um, any of these modern neo Hobbsians wants to come apart. They want to say, it cannot be the case that the mere existence of arbitrary power takes away freedom because there's no act of interference. I mean, it merely exists. It isn't actually being used. And, of course, this was what the British government said to the American colonists. They were saying, well, yes, um, y- you don't have representation, but we're re- your interests are represented. You can trust us not to do anything tyrannical. Um, so there will be no you know, coercive interference with your freedoms. And they're saying, look, that isn't the point it's the mere fact that we are dependents that takes away our freedom. Um, it's, no, the, the theory is one about dependence on an, arbitrary, an arbitrium, the Latin is crucial, a will. It is being dependent upon your mere will. If it is a law that expresses the will of the people, then that is not dependence, because it expresses your will, if it's a represented will. So the claim is that what takes away your freedom is the, the being of an arbitrary will within the system. Now, it, it may look as if that is a strange claim, but you have to think about mechanisms of self-censorship, and that's what they're extremely keen on. If you know that there is someone who if you happen to displease them could simply take away your job then you will try to find out what displeases them and then you won't do that and you'll be extremely stupid not to act in that way but your freedom is being infringed also Mary Wollstonecraft's point about men and women very important here you're being turned into a servile character this is not a good way to be this is not the sort of person you should want to be there's someone whom you have to be frightened of you can't look them in the eye. You have to bend the knee. Everything that the Republicans in the 17th century say, this is what's horrible about monarchy, about courts, um, about arbitrary power of any form. It's the, the mere existence of it generates um, self-censorship. And we know this. I mean, I gave this lecture recently in an American university, and if you say to, to people in the audience, okay, how many of you have not got tenure yet? you suddenly see people think, oh yeah, I see what he's talking about, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah now, I, now I get it, yeah, am I free to tell the chair that he or she is an absolute idiot, although everyone knows it, it's the emperor having no clothes, no one can tell the emperor that he has no clothes, you can't do that, that's unfreedom, so it's not a mystery, if you think of the emperor and his clothes, or think of not, have you got tenure? Yeah, you're all right.
0: Yes, <laughs> um, the uh, two down, the uh, lady with her hand up there. Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Next to uh, Kathleen. Yeah, there, right yeah. there. Yeah, It's okay. because you're wearing a really nice shirt. I can
4: <laughs> 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 That's the reason. <laughs> um, my question um, concerns all the three of them, um, and... I wonder whether you consider them compatible or mutually exclusive. Yeah. Because especially in the case of the last two I can think of many examples where you said that there must be two agents, one, you know, being interfered by someone and one interfering. So say I want to commit suicide um, and someone who's a Christian intervenes and prevents me from doing that. So I have the impression that very often you can't have one without the other because there will always be someone doing something to you and you trying to avoid that someone doing something or you being the agent in a sense Yeah. it's a sort of circle right
1: so w- what compatible I mean of, of course if, if, you're, um, if you're acting you, you might act for a higher purpose but if you're acting against my phenomenal desires in what I'm planning to do then you're taking away my freedom and of course that's the case um, what, what are the compatibilities or incompatibilities that you want you, you would like to be able to have it all would you
4: well, I'm just saying that...
1: Um, I think you can have it all.
4: That in a, in, a, in a situation, in a scenario where there's two people acting, one will be exercising their freedom in a self-realization third way, yeah. um, and someone else will be the recipient or passive uh, person, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, very good, okay. But that looks like a debate to me. I mean, that looks like the second person saying to the first, you know, I, I simply don't accept the premises on which you're engaging with me and I I take your behavior to be interference. I mean, that would be a very natural debate between someone who claims to know better because they claim to know about higher purposes and you who are happy with your phenomenal desires.
4: But the problem then becomes which one is the just one? Am I allowed to interfere with the person or Mm. is the person allowed to have non-interference? If one is my freedom and the other one is your freedom.
1: Yes. Well, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, freedom is always a negotiation. Um, the the, the image of complete freedom is the image of the state of nature and that's a a condition of all rights and no law but if you imagine that condition then you're not imagining something that you want to live with so you're willing of course that's Hobbes' fundamental thought isn't it Um, so what you're willing to do is to give up or to negotiate freedom for other benefits I am not here to say that freedom is the sole value. It's obviously an important value to all of us. But freedom regularly collides with other values. I mean, economic freedom collides with equality. Um, ec- uh, economic freedom and equality both collide with justice. Uh, th- these uh, can't be all... I mean, unless you're Ronald Dworkin and you think that justice is just way no of talking about freedom, which is the same as talking about duty, which is the same as talking about rights. I mean, in his latest book, he solved all the problems by saying all these terms mean the same thing. But... <laughs> if you think there's something wrong with that then what you're doing is acting as a moral agent, you're constantly engaged in dialogues with yourself about how these work out I'm not here to solve that
0: there's a gentleman here at the front has his hand up.
1: am I correct in understanding that when you said Hegel's concept of freedom was a positive one that uh, when Marx said famously philosophers have interpreted the world in various ways, the poet is to change it, he was articulating that very idea I, I didn't mean to say that I certainly did mean to say that as Hegel is received into the anglophone tradition in the late 19th century, he is seen as saying that what we think of as negative liberty and as paradigmatic of freedom is simply the negative moment in a dialectic of liberty. Um, And that the question we have to ask is what you want that freedom for, and we have to answer that question in terms of a theory of human essence. We have to answer that in terms of a theory of human nature as being normative. Now, um, the relationship of Marx to that is not a subject I feel confident in talking about in general terms but that's certainly what I wanted to say about the Hegelian tradition, yeah, and so Hegel's nasty remarks about English liberalism which are clearly directed against writers like Bentham um, is to say, you know, you haven't got off the ground here because you just think that people are free if they can do what they want but I'm here to tell you that human nature is normative
0: The lady in black here in the uh, fourth row right here
1: I'm sure you're next.
5: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, my question is about the concept of freedom as a burden rather than as something that people enjoy. Mm. And uh, uh, I'll tell you an example I think of when I'm asking about this, about uh, freedom as a burden. Uh, in our society, many people or some people uh, make a choice they are free to make the choice. And then this choice may be to become a fundamentalist. And then once they become fundamentalist, freedom is taken away Mm. and they have to conform, well, more than conform, obey. So I don't know if there are any thoughts that you could uh, help me to think about this particular idea. Well,
1: I have been talking about um, freedom to choose. I mean, it may be an illusion, but we all believe we can do this or that. Um, so I, I've been talking about that but um, that hasn't been my main aim this evening my main aim this evening as you see uh, in front of you is to try to answer questions of the former what, what are we talking about when we talk about freedom and I've tried to say there's a standard answer it's not a good answer it's an extraordinarily much more complex answer than is commonly given and there are completely different and rival answers to it that's all I've tried to say Now your question asks um, not how should we think about freedom in the sense of if I say I'm feeling free, then you understand what I'm talking about, but um, what should we think about freedom? Is it it a fundamental value? Um, How does it relate to other values? Uh, And I've sort of given a very programmatic answer to that in responding to the previous question. But that's not the level at which I've been talking about this evening, although, of course, your example is a, is a poignant and a very important one.
0: Um, let's see, the gentleman at the back giving us a salute.
2: You spoke a moment ago about economic freedom. Can I just return to the area that the first question I asked? Clearly, if you haven't got enough... Economic resources to buy enough food and you starve and you die or not free. But is there not also uh, an economic dimension to self-realization in the top right of your chart there? Um, if uh, you need to, if you're going to realize your life fully, there's a political essence, there's a spiritual essence, is there not also an economic essence? And isn't that where we come back to? Amartya Sen, who you mm. slightly perhaps battered aside uh, at the beginning in relation to Hobbes, and isn't that the dimension that he is trying to develop in Development of Freedom and various other, other works?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, it's a strange feature of that spectacular book that um, I don't think that the examples that he gives, um, especially the Indian examples, are in the least damaged by the fact that I see a fault in the at the the beginning of the philosophical analysis I've talked to him a lot about this um, and I I think he now feels that there is a fault um, in in that part of the analysis but that it doesn't matter for what he subsequently wants to say and I agree with that Um, but that's because it seems to me that a natural way of thinking about the examples in the latter part of the book especially about the empowerment of women um, is about minimising dependency Um, the point about lack of resources is very important, we talked about it earlier, but notice that um, for lack of resources there may be many things that I'm unable to do Um, and at the limit um, I I might be starving for lack of resources and, and unable to sustain my life. The question it's a hard point this, but the question about freedom may or may not enter into such discussions. The question about freedom is: Is some identifiable agent disempowering you from the capacity that counterfactually you would have? If so, then we have a huge question about social justice on our hands. If not, then it may just be—I mean, nature does not enter into my account. If there's a uh, if, if there's a tsunami such that all your crops are washed away and your children starve. Um, they were unable to eat, but it's not clear that they were prevented from being able to eat by any identifiable agency except God, who, as usual, has a lot to answer for. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: Now, are, you've had your hand up all the time, so I'm going to usurp the chair, because too many men are speaking, so can we have your question? Yes, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> he meant morally right. <laughs> Thank
5: you very much, uh Skinner stay with your um, uh, republican branch of the tree yes you can of course uh, who counts as slave you can extend that uh, quite a lot for instance it would uh, the nice thing of your accounts that it would account for uh, slavery of addiction I'd say and um, Sorry, uh,
1: yes I, I don't want to say that um, if, you, if you're a hopeless addict um, you're, you're, you're over here Um this is where I place you.
5: All right.
4: You're
1: unable to help yourself. Yeah you, yeah, you being unable to help yourself is not at all what I'm talking about over here. Okay. Yeah.
5: However, uh, don't forget the addict, but you can extend this list. I wonder. I mean, I'd,
1: I'd, yeah, I would like to know how you would.
5: But whenever any agent is um, dependent on another agent or group of agents.
1: Yeah. Of course, yes. Um, yeah. So you would want it to be—I mean, non-unionised labour. Yeah. Um, living with a uh, uh, living unemployed with a violent partner. For instance. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, many of these are extremely important in our society, and we don't have a good way of thinking about them, because yeah. um, you know the state doesn't interfere. But gross dependency relationships are developing in our society. Okay. I'm
5: given given that. Yeah then aren't we always dependent on other people? And isn't that, in fact, um, something that we would want because of our, um, of our being social and interpersonal beings?
1: Okay, um, I have to say emphatically that I'm not here to say that freedom is a good thing. I'm here to say what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I haven't, this has not been a, a piece of moral philosophy in that sense. There's been a lot of moralizing going on. But if you prefer uh, to be in love and wholly dependent upon somebody else, and when I tell you that that looks to me like unfreedom, you say, well, I couldn't care less. That's fine well, by me.
5: I'd like to say that that is free, I'm in sorry? a sense. I would like to say that that is some sort of freedom. that a good kind of
1: freedom should account for that yes what I'm trying to say is two things here one is that conditions of dependence take away freedom that's the most important thing I want to say but it may be the case that you are living in conditions of extreme dependence and don't mind about that you may relish it now in my discussion with you I would then have to say well isn't freedom a value for you and you might say no, what you shouldn't say is it's a form of freedom, you should say freedom doesn't matter to me that's what my analysis suggests
0: I'll, I'll have to ask you to leave it there uh, and uh, at this point I know there are many other uh, hands but um, the time has come to thank uh, Professor Skinner again for a <laughs> well, wonderful, wonderful stimulating lecture
1: Okay. Well, thank you